Welcome back to another episode of the We Live to Build podcast. This is 133 with Matthew Sneep. Matthew is the co-founder and chief business officer of Table Vibe, a platform which helps restaurants sell directly to online customers and deliver food instantly while saving a lot of money and retaining customer data. They're headquartered in Singapore and have so far raised over $1.5 million. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me, Matthew. I appreciate it. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit more about Table Vibe and uh, how you came to be living in and starting a company in Singapore? Table Vibe, essentially, we, um, we as you said, we're a we're a commission-free uh, online ordering platform for restaurants that saves them a ton of money and helps them to really own and grow uh, their customer relation relationship with their online customers. Um, so I moved to Singapore about. Uh, four years or so uh, ago in December 2018 and I really saw that uh, you know while working at Google uh, we saw that uh, you know all decisions that we were making at the company were all based on data and when we looked at the restaurant industry we saw that uh, a lot of uh, restaurants were very much relying on third parties um, to do business so that could be you know loyalty apps uh, delivery apps um, uh, booking applications and all of these applications are typically owning that customer relationship and they charge pretty high fees in order to uh, drive business for a restaurant. So with that in mind, we thought, well, it would be great for restaurants to, uh, own, and gr- to own their own customer relationships and own their customer data so they can actually understand their customer base and make better decisions on the back of that. And on the other hand, um, also we can help restaurants to reduce fees by you know, creating software that can, um, um, that can um, uh, help them to sell directly to their online customers. So that's essentially how, uh, how the Table Vibe idea was, uh, was born. Um, and well, my co-founder and I, we were both working at uh, the same company, the same team, and we were both based here in Singapore. So that's the primary reason why we started here. So why don't you start by explaining the difference between you and someone like a Zomato or a Grubhub or whatever, DoorDash, these kinds of companies. These type of apps typically charge uh, like a 25 to 30% commission. So that means from every dollar you spend on those apps, about 25 to 30 cents goes to the delivery platform. Um, We don't charge any commission, um, but we do charge a two to 5% service fee to the end customer. So, um, and we also partner with uh, delivery companies to actually deliver food to the customers at a low flat fee. So what that means is that all in all, uh, restaurants save anywhere between 50 and 80% in costs by processing orders with Table Vibe versus a Zomato or a DoorDash. And um, they also have the opportunity to pass on part of those cost savings to consumers. So it's really a win-win, uh, both for consumers and restaurants to uh, process orders on Table Vibe. Now, you guys are incorporated in Singapore, right? That's right, yeah. And... You're, you have an office in Singapore, your employees are Singaporean, your investors are Singaporean, like that? or Well, we're a remote first company, so we do have a few employees here in Singapore. Uh, but we also have folks who work for us in uh, the Philippines, uh, Australia, uh, the Netherlands and Italy. So we're a remote first business. Um, we, we, you know, we, have comp- we have employees across the globe. Uh, most of our uh, restaurant partners are in Singapore, the Philippines, 
uh, and Australia. We also have a few partners in uh, the Netherlands, but we don't really actively do sales there. Um, it's mostly just you know some inbound leads that came to us after we got some press. So I have a friend that worked for Zamata for many years and in sales. She worked for them in the Philippines, Malaysia, and New Zealand. And part of their business model was they would actively go out into the streets and find businesses and just approach them door to door pretty much and say, hey, you know, can we help you do this? And she's from mainland China. And so they would specifically task her with going to the Chinese owned businesses in those various countries because she could speak to them in Mandarin and she could make them feel comfortable and, and all of that. Um, how do you handle this process of, uh, of dealing with leads? Um, well, I've tried pretty much everything, uh, going door to door, uh, calling restaurants, uh, you know, using LinkedIn, uh, sending cold emails. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, um, I think what I found out is that, uh, thing like different approaches work well for different types of restaurants. Um, there's definitely a bit of like, it's definitely less, definitely harder for me to sell to like a traditional Chinese hawker stall here in Singapore, right? Um, I don't think that's, I don't think that will be very successful if I would, uh, fully focus on that. Um, but generally speaking, I'd say that, you know, door to door tends to work pretty well for, um, uh, like smaller, uh, restaurants. So maybe restaurants with like anywhere between like one and three locations. Um, for larger restaurant groups, I found it most successful to, uh, you know, try and get in touch with someone who makes a, who can make, who is like a decision maker on a, a group level. Um, so I think for those type of leads, um, emails, uh, events, um, uh, cold calls tend to, uh, tend to work best. I think one of the mistakes I made in the beginning is that, you know, uh, power distances here in Asia are, um, are, are, are pretty large, right? So it typically means that decisions are made top down. Whereas uh, in Europe, most of that tends to be a bit more uh, democratic. So um, actually you have decision makers that are uh, maybe, you know, marketing managers or like somewhat like lower in the hierarchy of the organization. Um, so yeah, one thing I definitely learned is to, is to you know, start at the top rather than start at um, uh, like um, levels in the organization that are a little bit lower in hierarchy. Yeah, I remember in Asia when I was, you know, going out to business networking, carrying my cards and, and giving them to people and all that. Whenever my card said that I was like the founder of something, it was always more like, wow, than you know, oh, you're the business manager, right? So, uh, so I'll give you an example. Um, when I was first in Wuhan in central China, I was an English teacher. And when I would tell people I was an English teacher, they'd be like, wow, that's so great. You know, that's like a really important thing. But when I was traveling to like Shanghai and Shenzhen and Guangzhou, and I would tell people like when I was living in Wuhan and I would travel to those places, I would say I was an English teacher. They would go, oh, you're an English teacher, <laughs> right? So there, there's a geographical difference in opinions, at least in China. Um, and so when I was finally in southern China and I was the HR manager of a company, it's like, oh, you're an HR manager. Like that was you know special. But then when you're like, oh, I'm the founder of something, I've created this platform, this thing. And they're like, oh, wow, you're like, you know, hot stuff, basically, um, without you needing to have that kind of vibe of like conceitment. 
Um, so yeah, and and it it permeates through Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, a lot of Southeast Asian cultures, especially um, Philippines as well. Uh, so yeah, that definitely helps. You should probably whoever your salespeople are that are going out and dealing with people, they should all be the owner. Just have them all be the owner. They're they're, they're all the chief business <laughs> yeah. development officer or something. Yes, that would be uh, exactly that would be that would be a good idea. Yeah, exactly. All of them are country leads, uh, like general managers for their countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could you could actually try that, right? Um, I think to some extent, um, yeah, people do definitely look more at your job title, and yeah, um, yeah. I mean, we haven't really tried so far, but yeah, maybe we can use it to our advantage. Yeah, you're right. Even I look at people's job titles. Mostly because I try to only talk to like a founder or an investor, right? For the podcast, for example, um, you call yourself a chief business officer or chief. Maybe I'm just a maybe I'm just a sales manager, Sean. You might just be a sales manager, <laughs> but you have the tar that you have the term co-founder in front of your name. So I don't care if you call yourself the chief. You know, I'm going to take this company to the moon, officer. If you're a co-founder, you're still you know, you're still a co-founder. Um, but yeah, especially in Asia, these titles are really important. Um, so what are some of the most important things you've learned besides that so far from the, I guess, the external point of view, dealing with customers and, and what they like and what they don't like and, and what services you need to provide? It's really important for us to um, uh, to keep a very close like relationship with restaurateurs. I think you know the world where I'm from, uh, at, at, like dealing with larger corporations which are uh, focusing on uh, growing the ROI of their advertising. It's a very um, uh, it's a very numbers driven uh, um, type of relationship which. You know, of course, it's important to have good sales skills, but ultimately, uh, you know, those like you are dealing with sometimes a large team of professionals that are crunching data on a day to day basis and that are uh, fully focused on squeezing or like maximizing their return on investment and squeezing every large, every last penny out of their advertising budget. Right. Um, whereas uh, restaurateurs definitely also are data driven, but it's um, it's more of a relationship where um, uh, also having a good personal collection is a, is very important. So people have to, I think, also like you uh, and have to, you know, like what you're doing and have a good feeling about what you're doing in order for them to uh, to adopt your solutions. So I think that's that's one, you know, large difference I think between uh, the type of sales role I have right now versus the type of sales role I had at Google. Um, the other thing is, um, um, you know, working at Google, like uh, everyone picks up the phone, right? You know, you're you're well, you're working with Google, so people people are always interested in talking to you. Whereas with you know Table Vibe, we don't uh, yet uh, have that type of uh, recognition. So um, yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly a lot uh, a lot more challenging to uh, to get people to 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 talk to you. Um, even though we do see a good amount of like inbound interest and like a good amount of you know uh, interest from restaurants generally in our products, um, I think not having that name recognition is all, is definitely also changing uh, and and affecting um, uh, the effectiveness of our sales process, right? So 
Yeah, I don't know if that's what you were that's what you were asking for, but yeah, those are like the first two things that come to mind. Do you think having the experience working for Google has helped to open doors with customers or investors? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, when we started Table Vibe, um, we um, uh, did a pitch for Y Combinator, um, and yeah, I think having. Uh, you know, working at a well-recognized American company definitely helped us. Uh, at least it didn't work against us. Um, and yeah, when we and then you know, if you look at that, uh, if you zoom out a little bit, when we, then we joined Y Combinator. Once we joined Y Combinator, we were uh, you know we we were in the um, spotlight of the uh, y, VC community, and that really helped us to accelerate our business. Right, so. Um, yeah, definitely. I think it has helped us a lot. Yeah. What are the difficulties of trying to run a business like this where you're simultaneously opening multiple markets, but you're, you are not physically there? It is harder to, uh, uh, to do sales if you're not physically in that market, right? So um, what we're trying to do is hire really good people locally. So we recently hired a, uh, a sales director in Australia. Uh, we hired a country lead for uh, the Philippines. And so I think that is really helpful in order to scale our business. Um, I don't think we can, uh, we can you know, become the next uh, unicorn in the restaurant tech space if we don't have boots on the ground or if we don't have people locally who are representing Table Vibe to restaurants. Um, so the approach I typically take is that I try to uh, um, do some sales from Singapore and create a few you know, relationships with restaurants while working here. Uh, and if we see uh, that those restaurants find success with Table Vibe and they love what we're doing, at that point, I'm uh, trying to recruit someone locally and to then really you know, scale that business in, uh, in that market. And I think now we're at a stage where we can safely say that we have found product market fit in most of the markets we operate in, uh, specifically uh, uh, Singapore, the Philippines and Australia. So that's a really you know, great um, thing to have under our belts. And 2023 will be all about scaling our business. And with scaling our business, I also mean scaling up our local teams in those markets. Um, yeah, so that's, that's how I'm trying to approach it. I find it interesting that one of the markets you didn't mention you have product market fit in is your home market. You mean the Netherlands? Well, yeah, why do you think that is? For a couple of reasons. I mean, we do have a few restaurant partners there who, who love what we're doing. But uh, in order for our online ordering system to, uh, in order for restaurants to really reap all the benefits of our online ordering system, it's really important for us to have that uh, local uh, delivery partnership. So, so far, you know, we've integrated with uh, and we partner with DoorDash, Uber, uh, Grab, uh, Foodpanda, Lalamove. But there's no uh, similar company yet in the Netherlands that is, um, uh, that is offering those services to third parties like ourselves. Um, and so uh, Uber is active in the Netherlands, but they're not offering Uber Direct there yet. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's our main reason for not really focusing on the Netherlands right now, because we feel that there's just there's simply more value that our product is offering to uh, to restaurants in uh, in the three markets here in Asia. Well, it's a very interesting insight. Um, I've used Uber in some countries, Grab in countries like Malaysia, um, as well as Vietnam, uh, Didi, Datra in China. 
um, Bolt in Portugal. I mean, like everywhere you go, there's these different local brands. Um, it seems like the Netherlands doesn't have its own local transportation service, but maybe that's also because the Netherlands is so um, so in tune with walking and uh, riding bikes. Do you think that might might have a thing? Might be a reason why there's an issue there. These services are definitely out there in the Netherlands, right? You've got Uber, you've got Thuisbezorgd uh, or, or Takeaway.com, uh, Getir, uh, Gorillas for like like ten minute grocery deliveries. So so these companies are out there. Um, I think the difference is that um, most of these businesses or so far, all of these businesses don't open up their delivery network to third parties like Table 5. So that's the reason why um, uh, you know we can roll out our online ordering system for pickup, but not for deliveries in the Netherlands just yet. Um, but you're definitely right. I mean, the Netherlands is far more uh, uh, connected and, you know, I was I was looking at this interesting uh, YouTube clip from uh, not just bikes. I'm not sure if you know this YouTube channel, but they essentially compare uh, infrastructure in America versus the Netherlands. And in America, they have this concept of uh, strodes. So it's essentially a road which also has a lot of uh, retail shops uh, uh, on it, but it's not really a pedestrian area, right? Like it's more like a like sort of like a six lane road. And um, what they essentially so. What the, the point they are essentially making is that uh, if you want to go anywhere in the US, maybe except for when you're living in like Manhattan in New York, you, you need a car. And all the infrastructure is, uh, is focused on um, making it easy for people to transport themselves in cars. And the Netherlands is, is radically different, right? If you live in most cities, uh, they are all very well connected by public transport. Um, anywhere you go, any road you're on, uh, is um, uh, accessible for bikes. And so, yeah, that definitely does change uh, people's behavior. And, um, you know, it's not uncommon for someone in the Netherlands to go grocery shopping every second day or every day. Whereas I think in the US, uh, you typically go grocery shopping maybe like once a week or so. Um, so, yeah, that, that does change things. And it does change how people do, how people interact with businesses. Yeah, absolutely. You're completely correct. I think it, has to do with the fact that a lot of countries in Europe have cities that are much older than cities in America. And so the infrastructure was designed at a time when automobiles didn't exist and there was no concept for them. And so the the roads were much more narrow and, and therefore it, let, it lended itself to walking or, you know, riding a horse. Um, and so, and, and now bicycles and all that. Um, and so that's why... Um, and, and that's why that behavior is different. Now, uh, about the difference between why Europeans go to the store every day or every other day versus Americans once a week, that I don't know why. But I remember when I was younger and I went to go study in um, Austria, the family had a much smaller fridge. And... I think that might have been one of the reasons why they went to the store quite often. But also I think it's because people aren't really buying processed food the way Americans are. They have a lot less options and therefore they tend to go for things that are fresh that'll go bad really off, uh, really fast. And so they're looking to buy something fresh and they're going to cook it that day um, or maybe the next day. And then they go to the store to get the next thing. 
um, whereas Americans typically buy processed foods or prepackaged frozen foods and things that they can just kind of heat up, um, you know, in a few days or a week or whatever. Plus, they're also used to going to restaurants and there's takeaway and uh, there's, you know, there's delivery and all of that. So I, there is a, a cultural difference behind it all. And that, I think that might be one of the reasons why uh, things like Uber Eats and DoorDash and Grubhub are so successful in America specifically um, compared to other countries just because of this uh, lack of a desire to prepare fresh food. It's a lot faster to not do anything but press a button on your phone. Um, yeah. So what have you learned recently from doing this business that's different from what we've already kind of come across? One of the key lessons that we've learned is, um, you know, it's really important for us to make sure that you kind of like look at uh, businesses as uh, solving a series of mini games, right? So right now, you know, we, uh, for example, when it comes to uh, finding product market fit, like a lot of your friends are always asking you, okay, you know, how many employees do you have, right? And uh, and uh, you know, as if that's an indicator of uh, how well your business is doing. Whereas I think it's really important as an entrepreneur to not focus, to not scale too fast until you have uh, that certainty that you actually have product market fit. Um, and it can be that that can be quite um, uh, stressful, right? And and very difficult because you know your uh, we raised uh, we raised capital. Uh, we had a product that worked, but we felt that you know the first product we launched, which were uh, QR code based feedback surveys, uh, they were very valuable to restaurants, but not a uh, absolute business essential. And so we wanted to create something that's really at the heart of a restaurant's business operations. And so that's why we introduced this online ordering system uh, where we now ha clearly have product market fit and uh, now we're ready to scale the business. But um, yeah, so I think one of the things I learned is to try and, um, and, and that, that's why I refer to this as mini games, is to try and uh, solve problems one, one at a time. I think there's a big risk that uh, if you um, uh, go large too fast, um, it may, um, uh, you can actually like blow up your business uh, in a negative sense. In other words, you can, you know, grow so fast that you are uh, uh, creating unsustained growth. So it's finding that balance, right? Between on the one hand, making sure that you, that you grow fast and that, but also try and do that in a sustainable way. And that's a constant balance you're trying to get right. Um, that's one of the things I think that I, that I really learned from um, uh, starting a business. Um, the other thing is, um, I, I just think I have a like new appreciation for uh, how different countries can be. Um, I think you know Singapore is a place which is uh, English speaking, uh, super business friendly, uh, where people are generally like. Uh, very happy to like adopt new solution and new solutions and try out, and try out new things um, but then you know uh, there's you know Indonesia like can be more different right so Indonesia Batam is about uh, 10 to 15 kilometer like boat ride from Singapore but when you are uh, when you're taking that boat ride and get off in Batam it's a completely different universe right like 
different language, different people, uh, a very different mindset. Um, and so what's super important to scale a business here in Asia is to really uh, think local first and think about, okay, you know, how do people do business in the Philippines? What's the best way to enter that market? Um, um, uh, should we maybe change our communication or should we maybe change our value proposition for to to make sure that TableVibe is appealing to businesses in those markets? Um, yeah, those are some of the things I think that I that I um, that I think of when I when it comes to learnings. Yeah, it's a very it's a very um, um, it's a very very diverse region um, and probably in many ways more diverse than than Western and Northern Europe. What I found interesting in dealing with startups around Asia is that a lot of them are really only focused on their local economy. And the reason being is they don't have the energy or the money to understand other countries and they think their market is big enough for them to try to dominate their own market. And maybe they'll come and try to get the next country over in a few years, right? They really, they don't really think global unless they're kind of forced to. There's also a, a huge amount of red tape, right? Operating in like going from one market to the other. Um, I think, you know, in the US, you have one currency, one language. Um, um, Europe, uh, nowadays, you know, you have different languages, but you have a, you know, fairly homogeneous regulatory environment. Uh, one currency and so it just also makes it a lot easier to scale to other markets and to um, and to be active there um, which you know I think in in Asia uh, you have ASEAN you have uh, so it, it is getting easier I think to cross borders but it's still uh, I think a lot harder than in in Europe or America yeah North America in particular what are some things you've learned about yourself since starting this business it is hard for me to uh, always think 80-20. I think I'm uh, a little bit of a, <laughs> a little bit of a perfectionist. Uh, so uh, I don't know, sometimes that results in interesting conversations between my co-founder and myself. Um, uh, you know, it's just, if you start your own business, it's like, it, it's like your baby, right? Like you love for everything to be, to be, to be, to be right. And uh, so, um, yeah, I think I uh, I think I needed to learn, and I'm still learning uh, that uh, uh, taking an 80/20 approach is often most effective to uh, to grow the business. Um, um, it is, um, you know, starting when I started the business. I think it's uh, easy to um, uh, you know to, you need to do everything yourself, right? And so um, now I think we're at a stage where I'm trying to uh, uh, work a lot more with, about on like empowering our team, giving them the skills and knowledge to grow our business. And so I think what I learned, so I'm right now I think I'm learning how uh, to, um, uh, within my own business to be a good leader and to um, empower my team to, uh, to drive the business forward. Um, mm, I think, um, yeah. What, one of the other things I'm I'm trying to get better at is is how to how to structure your day. You know, oftentimes when I wake up, um, there's you know another like fifty emails, another 
10 WhatsApp messages. People here in Asia also like to, love to do business on WhatsApp, Viber, which makes it a lot more intrusive, right? Like email, you can sort of like park it in your inbox and like get to it when you feel the time, when the time is right for you. Whereas uh, at least in my case right now, you know, my WhatsApp and Viber messages are for from my, from my restaurant uh, partners are sort of, and also from my team, are sort of uh, uh, mixed with like private messages. So it makes it a lot harder to detach from work. And so I think what I need to get better at is um, making sure I have like a very clear distinction between my work and my private life. Because if you don't, you just end up working 24 seven and I don't think it's very sustainable. That's why Asians have two, two phones, one for business and one for their personal life. Yeah, I should probably get that. Uh, I don't at the moment. So uh, yeah, or I don't know, maybe opening like a WhatsApp like business account so you can separate the two. But I think it's still tied to the same phone number, right? So yeah, maybe I should just get a second phone. I've never used WhatsApp business as a, an owner, only as like a customer. So I don't know how it works. But um, yeah, I think in Asia, it's best to just have a second phone. I mean, I, I have one phone for work and and all of that but it doesn't bother me because it's not like i'm an employee of somebody else's company it's like a lot of the people i talk to are like friends but they're also business associates so i see them all as the same thing it's all it's always pleasure yeah exactly uh, yeah yeah that's how i used to view it as well yeah but maybe I've just convinced myself to work 24 seven and, and not think about it like that. <laughs> that could also be, that could also be the reason. Yeah. It's like I was on the treadmill at the gym earlier today. I was on the treadmill for an hour and I, while I was on the treadmill, I was like checking to see if there was any messages. And I actually hopped onto a voice chat in uh, discord on an entrepreneur community and I was chatting with some of them. Um, so is that healthy? I don't know. Mm. Probably not. Hmm. Well, it, it it can also help to uh, to open doors that would otherwise remain closed, right? Uh, it is sometimes also super easy as a business owner to just like WhatsApp your customer and get a response within five seconds. Uh, that is like something that you will probably never or very rarely get on email. So yeah, there's also advantages, but yeah, um, um, yeah, I, I think it's all about having those expectations, right? Um, you know, people here in Singapore work incredibly long hours and that's how, I mean, that's how they, uh, that's how they build up this country, which is amazing. You know, 50 years ago, uh, when Lee Kuan Yew came into power, uh, Singapore wasn't particularly uh, uh, wealthy or well-developed. And they've, uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And through hard work and dedication, uh, they've managed to develop the country to what it is today, which is, which is very admirable. Um, but it also means that people do have a you know, super strong work ethic and work really long hours. And um, um, yeah, I think it's, I think a lot of it is about managing expectations that maybe, you know, at like 11 at night, uh, uh, you're not gonna answer a message and it's gonna, and, and you will answer it the next day. Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely, that's definitely important. Um, in order to you know um, make sure that uh, that you uh, maintain some level of sanity, I'd say, yeah. What's been your most expensive mistake with the company? And if you have an actual financial amount tied to it, that would be awesome to know. 
we've been pretty careful with like how we uh, how we've been allocating uh, investment so far. Um, yeah, one thing that comes to mind is that at some point, and it's not like huge. I think it was around ten thousand USD. Uh, but one thing we did was uh, creating an explainer video for uh, a solution. You know, having an explainer video as an early stage startup, um, uh, unless you have like the tools to like easily change the message. I mean, your your product is developing super fast, right? So before you know it, that uh, explainer video will be outdated again. And so that's what kind of happened to us. Uh, so I think we spent about 10 grand on a video that we actually never uh, published on our website. I had another person I interviewed recently who said that his most expensive mistake was a million dollars um, for his own business. So it cost his business a million dollars in revenue. Um, I, I won't go into those details, but yeah, very, uh, very interesting mistake. And I, I've also made mistakes I won't mention here because we don't have time, but uh, maybe in a future episode. So how can people follow up with you? Uh, you know, ch chat to me on, on, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Um, they can also email me, uh, my first name, Somarche, at tablevibe.co. And uh, yeah, if people are w interested in connecting, I'd be, I'd be more than happy to do so. I appreciate it, Matthew. Uh, don't forget that entrepreneurship is a marathon, not a sprint. So take care of yourself every day.